If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 1. This is our text, but we will come to it much later in the sermon. This is the second Sunday of Advent, in which we look ahead, anticipating, remembering the birth of Jesus, but we also look ahead to his return. There are four Gospels in the New Testament that tell us about the life of Jesus. But only two tell us about the circumstances of his birth, the events before and after. Luke tells us of Gabriel appearing to Mary. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Matthew tells us the story of how an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Luke then tells us how that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem because of the census, and Joseph was from the house and the line of David and Bethlehem was the city or the town of David. Uh, There he went to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke then goes on to tell us of the shepherds that were in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Matthew tells us of the wise men, or the magi. After they had heard from the king, Herod, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. You'll notice two things, at least with Matthew's account. First of all, the magi went to a house. They didn't go to a stable. Okay. And secondly, when Herod ordered the slaughter of the innocents, um, we were told he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So what we have is that Jesus is born The shepherds go and they see him. And then Luke tells us that, in fact, when the time was right, they took him up. He was circumcised. They took him to the temple to present him to the Lord. He's the firstborn. Therefore, he had to be consecrated. All this took place before the Magi showed up. 
If you go to any Christmas program, you know, the kids, you know, they have the thing and they have the shepherds come up and then the wise men come up. Like, no, the wise men came, I would say, at least a year, if not more, afterwards that Joseph and Mary had settled in Bethlehem. And uh, that's when the Magi showed up. Then we're told in Matthew that Joseph was warned in a dream that someone wants to kill the child, which in fact Herod did. So they go to Egypt. They come back from Egypt and settle in Bethlehem. But then Joseph is nervous because Herod's son has taken over his place. So then they go up to Nazareth. This is all good stuff. It's important. So why doesn't Mark say anything about this? And why doesn't John? Instead, John goes all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Mark, on the other hand, has almost says nothing, well, he says nothing about the origins of Jesus. He jumps right in and says the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So why is it? Why is it that Luke and Matthew give us parts of the story and John and Mark tell us nothing about it? Well, let's back up a minute and do some background. And we've talked about this before. In 44 B.C., Julius Caesar was assassinated. He had proclaimed himself. He was, in fact, the emperor. Uh, The republic was gone, and he was in charge. The senators didn't like that, and so he was stabbed. Why is this important? Because, in fact, where Jesus was born, in fact, the whole Mediterranean basin was under Roman authority. So there's chaos in the Roman Empire at this point. You have different factions fighting for power, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. You have Brutus and Cassius, and then you have Octavian, who later would take the name uh, Augustus. He was Julius Caesar's adopted son. Octavian came out on top in 33 BC. After the Battle of Actium, he defeated uh, Antony and Cleopatra. But he took the name Augustus Caesar. So Julius Caesar's family name, but he took the name August. It's like great. He also took the title Divi Filius, the divine son or the son of a god. Two years later, he sent out the letter to the empire just to let people know what was going on, to announce he was now in charge. Like, you know, those of you in Egypt who were under Antony and Cleopatra, now you're under me. And those in Greece under Cassius and Brutus, now now you're under me. This is what the letter said in part. The beginning of the word of glad tidings, that is gospel, good news, that have come to all men through the coming of God to rescue the world, repent and believe. Sounds very much like a gospel, like a Christian message. But it is a public announcement that something has happened. Okay. The good news is that the empire is still there, that there is now a new emperor, a kingdom has come, and now Augustus Caesar is in charge. And he is going to save the world. 
So when we read from Mark, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's like this, this doesn't sound very Christian. In fact, it sounds quite political. But he's trying to tell his readers something. Something significant has happened. Someone has come into the world, and he has come to save the world. As I said, only Matthew and Luke tell us about the birth of Jesus. But interestingly enough, all four Gospels tell us about the man who came before Jesus, the one who came to announce him. That person is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And I would argue there is no good news about Jesus Christ without John the Baptist. Again, some background. We're told in Luke chapter 1 that there is a couple that uh, they don't have children, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, Gabriel appeared to him when Zechariah was working in the temple and told him, in fact, that they would have a son. He goes home and his wife Elizabeth gets pregnant. She is six months pregnant when the archangel appears to Mary and then Mary goes to visit her and we have that, that wonderful uh, statement from Elizabeth. Um, you know, Here's the mother of our savior, basically. So John came at least six months. He was born at least six months before Jesus. They were cousins. What was the world like that John came into and then Jesus six months after him? Well, again, some background, a brief timeline. In 722 BC, Israel, the 10 northern tribes that Guy has been reading to us about from Hosea, they are taken into captivity to Assyria, from which most of them did not return. In 582, uh, Judah, the two southern tribes, they are taken into captivity by the Babylonians. But in 538, Cyrus, who's now defeated the Babylonians, allows the Jews to come back. So now they had been taken out of the promised land, but then some of them are allowed to come back. And in the year 400, around there, the book of Malachi was written. It is the last book of the Old Testament. And between Malachi and John the Baptist, we have what has been called 400 silent years. God did not speak to his people. He did not send a prophet. There was only silence. And then John comes, and he is the one who has come to announce the coming of the Savior. Politically, it was a very dark time for the Jews. Things had not gone well. Um, first, the Assyrian Empire takes the ten tribes, then the Babylonian Empire takes the two tribes, then the Persians take over from the Babylonians, and then Alexander the Great comes in. Then you have, when he dies at a young age, the empire is divided up, and so the Jews are again under someone else. In 166, they become independent for almost a century. That's what Hanukkah is all about. Today is the third day of Hanukkah, third or fourth day of Hanukkah, um, celebrating uh, a miracle in which the oil for the lamp in the temple remained, even though there was not enough. But in 63, the Romans came. And the Romans are in charge, 
when John the Baptist is born and when Jesus is born. But some people would say, okay, politically it wasn't so good, but religiously it seemed like sort of a, a really good time, a bright time. We have no idolatry among the Jews after the exiles. They learned their lesson that idolatry was in fact wrong. They knew that, but they now learned the hard way and idolatry was not found among them. The synagogue is developed during this time. While they are in exile, there's no, the temple has been destroyed. So they begin to meet. In fact, it comes from the Greek word to meet, uh, meeting. Um, so every Sabbath, the Jews would come together in the synagogue and they would come together and they would read from the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. Um, in fact, many of the aspects of Jewish worship were brought into the church once the church emerged in the first century AD. The Sanhedrin is created, sort of the Jewish Supreme Court in which religious matters are decided. The Old Testament is translated into Greek, uh, known as the Septuagint. Um, the translation of the Old Testament, by the way, points to an important development during that time, and that is there is Greek culture, but Greek becomes the language that people throughout the region speak. Two of the great Jewish rabbis of all time, even today, are recognized as being during this period, Shammai and Hillel. And in fact, if you go to most universities in this country, there will be a Hillel house uh, for Jewish students. Uh, not exactly a fraternity, uh, but a religious organization that they can join. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come into being during this time. So politically it's dark, but one might say religiously things are really happening. Things are sort of hopping. Okay, that's the historical context. What is the biblical context of John coming into the world? There are at least two passages that are mentioned by the writers of the Gospels. One comes from Isaiah 40. The other one comes from Malachi chapter 4. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A familiar passage. And in fact, when we get to our text uh, in Mark 1 in, in a bit, we will find, in fact, that Mark quotes a part of this. But then the last words of the Old Testament are incredibly important because it's 400 years of silence. What is the last thing that God says to his people? Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming and will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet by, on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, 
the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send to you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Those are the last words of the Old Testament. Strike the land with a curse. What Malachi does, God had sent him as a prophet to the exiles who had returned. Um, He calls on God's people. They've come back. Life is hard. It is really difficult. We're in the promised land. Where's the milk and honey that we were told about back in the time of Moses? There are three questions that they ask. Is it vain to serve the Lord? Is it worth serving God? Secondly, is there any difference between the wicked and the righteous? And thirdly, are there no guides for righteousness? For the next four centuries, the Jews would be asking themselves these questions. Is it worthwhile to serve God? Is there any difference between being good and being bad? How are we supposed to live? They would not hear again from the Lord until John the Baptist. And what did John say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So I said last Sunday, when we think of Advent, we'd rather think of Christmas than we would the second coming. In part because we are fearful that what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 64 is true, that he is a God who hides himself. And some would say, but wait, Damon, when you look at the last 2,000 years, the church has in fact pushed against the darkness. Um, Almost 30% of the world is said to be Christian or claims to be Christian. Look at the number of churches and church buildings, the number of parachurch organizations, the hospitals that have been built by churches, the charities, the orphanages, and so on. Some would say we are pushing against the darkness. But I would suggest, as I did last week, that Advent begins in darkness and we live in Advent. How we're supposed to do that, how am I supposed to live in darkness in the Advent? Well, somebody else did that before us, and that's John the Baptist. He is the last person in the Advent before the coming of Jesus, before he began his ministry. I don't know if you know this, but historians know this. John the Baptist is mentioned more by non-biblical sources of the first century than is Jesus. If you want to know about people in the New Testament, if you want to read Josephus and Roman historians, they talk about John the Baptist far more than they do about Jesus. He is Elijah who was to come, the one who comes before the Lord appears. Um, The passage I read from Malachi mentions Moses and it mentions Elijah. These are the two that appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration as they're talking about his coming death. So what was John's story? Let's look at Mark chapter 1, 
the first eight verses. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I said, Mark jumps right in. We don't have anything about uh, Gabriel appearing to Mary or Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem or the shepherds or the magi. No, he jumps right in. And where he jumps in is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Um, he doesn't quote as much of Isaiah 40 as Luke does, interestingly enough. And some people would say, why is that? Well, the Gospel of Mark is marked by its brevity. It is a rather short gospel, the shortest of the four gospels. Um, and I think his readers, if they were familiar with the Old Testament, would be able to fill out what he did not include. The table is set. John has prepared the path. Now it is time the Messiah can appear, Jesus can come and begin his ministry. Um, But consider several things. If you were, if, if I were to ask you, is this how you would do it? First of all, John is in the wilderness. He's in the desert. Okay, Not exactly where you expect a good announcement to be made. You want, in fact, the, the people, you know, where the people are. There aren't people living in the desert. There aren't people in the wilderness. They come out to him, interestingly enough. And his method of uh, announcing was unique. See, baptism is something that emerged during the 400 silent years. It was something for Gentiles. So let's say you're a Gentile, but you want, you believe in the true God and you want to become part of the people of God. Well, one of the things was required, you had to be baptized, that you go in a Gentile and you come out a Jew. Okay. John is preaching to Jews and saying, you need to be like Gentiles, recognizing your sinfulness. You go into the Jordan River and you come out, well, I was a Jew before I went in. And so his message is really quite strange. It's a physical act of repentance. Uh, I don't know that we normally think of repentance as requiring an act. It's like you just say something and then you know, you've repented. And his appearance, I mean, come on. This is a man who's wearing camel hair, uh, clothing made of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey um, 
Again, not what you would expect of someone who is going to announce a major figure, the figure of human history to appear. But John knew his place. He was marked by humility. Um, he said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. This is the first prophet that's shown up for 400 years. He is preaching God's message. One could say you could sort of get puffed up. I mean, four centuries. I'm the first guy in 400 years. But he recognizes that he, in fact, is pointing to the one who is to come. Don't you think it's strange what Mark tells us about this guy, John the Baptist? Why tell us what he wore? I don't think we're ever told what Jesus wore. There is a time when he washed the disciples' feet, and we're told, you know, they took off, and he was on his knees washing their feet. But, I mean, this is the one person in the New Testament that we are told what he wore, and what he wore seemed a bit strange, and what he ate. Um, what we come away with, at least for me, is a picture of a rather strange individual. A strange man. There's a quote, uh, I'll be quoting this person uh, several times in the sermon. Uh, I have preached about him, that's John the Baptist, during Advent for 21 years. Yet I find him each year to be more uncanny and intractable than ever. After 2,000 years, he still stands there irreducibly strange, gaunt and unruly, lonely and refractory, utterly out of sync with his age or our age or any age. Even Elijah is positively lovable and cuddly in comparison. John's character, however, was never the central focus even for the early church. Though his person is remarkable by any standard, it is not his person that stands out. It is his location. We'll talk more about this in a bit. This strange man, as strange as he was, was marked by a fearlessness and a single-mindedness. He feared no one, not even the king, King Herod, and not even King Herod's wife, who ultimately will have his head cut off. Um, but he was single-minded. He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet, with true humility, utterly submissive to the one who's coming after him. I mean, if you're the person announcing, sometimes, you know, people who announce need to sort of get out of the way, but they're so busy announcing that they forget it's not about you, it's about the one who's coming after you. And John did not have that problem. His message is the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. For a lot of people, to repent means to say you're sorry. There is that, okay? I don't want to brush that aside. It is a part of what it means to repent, but it's much more than that. And John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. It's not to say if you were baptized, your sins were forgiven, but you in fact confessed your sins, you repented of your sins, and you showed that by being baptized in the Jordan River. A better sense of what repentance is we find in the passage from Isaiah that is quoted 
uh, by Luke, but also here by Mark. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. This is John's message. It is a radical reordering of reality. The mountains brought down, the valleys brought up, the rough roads made smooth, making a highway for our God. It's a whole different way of being. And in this sense, repentance is not for sort of the weak people. You know, like, oh, you know, people who keep saying they're sorry, their repentance is more for them. It's like, I'm sorry for what I did. Repentance is, in fact, for the strong to say, I am, by God's grace, changing. My view of reality is changing. The message of Advent means taking a good long look, not at somebody else's faults, but our own. And it is the strong person who says, I am a sinner, and things need to change. The teacher in Ecclesiastes tells us, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. We saw last week in Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold on you for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Jeremiah tells us plainly, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it? The picture becomes clear now, or at least clearer. The problem of sin is found in every human heart. Again, Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And so the message of Advent, the message of John the Baptist is repent. Things need to change. I've mentioned several things here that I've mentioned before. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was exiled from Russia by the Soviet, Union, the Soviet government. And as he was leaving, he greeted people along his journey, some of whom had, in fact, were responsible for his being imprisoned in the Gulag in Siberia. They remained in their positions of power until the Soviet Union collapsed. And some people objected, why are you talking to these people? These are the people who are responsible for what's happened to our country. More than that, they're responsible for what happened to you. That's why you were in exile. And he responded famously that the line between good and evil is never simply between us and them. The line between good and evil runs through each of us. And the, mass, the message of Advent from John the Baptist is repent. We need to change our way of thinking and our perspective on reality. God's people failed to acknowledge the evil in their midst, even when judgment would come on them. They're God's chosen people. And John says... You know what? 
you people are like Gentiles, like those who are not chosen. You need to get baptized. You need to go into the water as though you're a Gentile, alienated from God, and come out of the water as though you are, in fact, a child of God. Again, I've mentioned that the London Times, or the Times of London, uh, back at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, sent out letters and asked some of Britain's leading intellectuals uh, what they thought the problem was with the world. Why are things so messed up? And G.K. Chesterton uh, famously sent back a postcard saying, I am. Each of us needs to recognize that we are, in fact, sinners. I said there are two thing, or three things to consider about John. One is his person, his message. But the third is his location. And by this, I don't mean the Jordan River or the wilderness, which I think sort of resonated with the Jewish people. Wilderness, Jordan River, 40 years in the wilderness before they come into the promised land. Uh, one could argue that's, that's a really good branding, if you wish. You know, that's a way to get the message across. Um, but I think what is important is his place and time. As one writer put it, John's divinely ordained location in the world, according to the New Testament, is on the frontier of the ages as God arrives in his world to turn it away from its, part, uh, its past of sin and bondage toward a future of promise and freedom to deliver the message of the invading Son of God. John is at the end, if you wish, of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. He is, in fact, announcing that God, in the person of Jesus, is invading the world, that he might save it. We hear this in, John's, or, I'm sorry, in Matthew's account of John the Baptist. When he preaches, because you know, everyone's going out to be baptized, and then the religious leaders, the Pharisees, you know, are like, I want to know what's going on. And they, in fact, hint at they want to be baptized. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, to quote this author, I mentioned, even today, John the Baptist's lonely, austere style of life bears witness to a reality that is coming, a reality that will expose all worldly realities, all earthly conditions, all human promises as fraudulent and transitory. His appearance on the scene at this time of year exposes our pretensions for what they really are. Yeah, most people, I don't know if you've seen any Advent calendars or Christmas calendars. Um, you don't find John the Baptist on them, do you? This is not someone we want to think about at Christmas time because he exposes the fact that in many ways we think as the world does. Never have we needed him more. In the, most con in the most extraordinary way, John is truly our contemporary. He stands at the very precipice of the collision of two forces, at the juncture where the world's resistance to God meets the irresistible force of the one who is coming. The axe is already 
laid at the root of the trees. In James, we saw the issue of being in two minds. And it is John who says, stop being of two minds, repent, turn from that, and think as God would have you. There John is, and he will be until the Lord Jesus returns, always calling us to rethink, to reorder our lives totally, to orient our lives toward a perspective, a new perspective, which is the perspective of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Bear fruit that befits repentance. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. What does it mean to live in the darkness in Advent before the second coming? It is to be like John the Baptist. Like John the Baptist, the season of Advent is somewhat peculiar. It's out of phase with the times. We're thinking of the gifts we're going to buy, the presents we're going to wrap, the gifts we're going to get. The gifts we're going to unwrap. But again, to quote an author, Advent encroaches upon us in an uncomfortable way, making us feel somewhat out of sorts with its stubborn resistance to anything remotely resembling the season of shopping and decorating and wrapping and partying. Yeah, that's not what we think of when we think of Advent. Paul wrote to the Roman believers, the Roman Christians, those in Rome, and do this understanding the present time. That is Advent. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Sounds an awful lot like John the Baptist's call to repentance. But consider that we are told over and over and over again to repent, to change, to orient our lives toward God. But no matter how many times we are told this, nothing will happen. Or nothing seems to have happened. Yes, nothing will happen. John told his listeners this. I don't know that we are listening to what he said. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We require something outside of ourselves. That is the Spirit of God, though God has implanted him in our hearts, a power outside of ourselves that we might repent that we would change our way of thinking and orient our lives toward God. It's God's power. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom has come. Again, to quote this author, 
John is the model Christ, uh, Christian preacher and witness. By the grace of God alone, all preachers stand in the line of this strange, unattractive man. The spotlight you see is not on the preacher, nor is the spotlight on John. John himself is the spotlight. John himself disappears. His preaching is the beam, and the light falls on Jesus alone. It's not about him. It's about the one coming after him. In the Gospel of John, I read you the first five verses of John, but now verse number six. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not that light. He came only as a witness to the light, the light, the true light that gives light to every man that was coming into the world. See, the preacher is nothing. The word is everything. Jesus is everything. And if we want to know how to live in Advent before the second coming of Jesus, we need to look at the one who lived before the first coming of Jesus, that is John, and follow his example. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray together. Our Father, sometimes things are so familiar to us that they lose their importance to us. And being human beings, fallen as we are, when we hear words like repent, we imagine this is something we can do on our own. Even when we tell other people they need to repent, somehow we have implied that they can do this on their own. And we forget that it is the Lord Jesus who sends the Holy Spirit, who has sent the Holy Spirit, that he might do his work in our lives. And not simply when we first believed, but every day since, if we would just get out of the way. We don't know when the Lord Jesus is coming back. And so in some sense, we might say we don't know how to act. If we knew when he was coming back, we'd have a better sense. But may we look at John, the one who announced the coming of the Savior. And as strange as this man seems to us, he is the model for how we are to live. His message tells us how we are to think. Every valley will be raised, every mountain brought low, and the rough road made smooth. It is a changing of our perspective. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that work in our lives again and again and again. And may we hear the words of Paul to those in Rome that we would know that the day is appearing, it's coming. In the meantime, we're in the darkness. May we not live as people of darkness, but as people of the light. 
it seems in many ways that we are really, really swimming against the tide. When we think of Christmas, not in terms of salvation, when we think of Advent anticipating Christmas, not in terms of John, this strange guy in the wilderness. We bemoan the commercialization of Christmas. I think we're so far past that already. It's, it has been drained of every bit of significance. The Lord Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Holy Spirit, drive this message home to our hearts. Father, we ask that as we leave this place, your spirit and your grace would go with us. Not just today, but in the coming days. That we would have a true sense of what it means that Jesus has come into the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.